Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. Uh, the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Today, we're going to conclude our character series by looking at several characters who all have the same name, Herod. Uh, Jesus came to advance the kingdom of God, which threatened the kingdom of Herod. Uh, so they devoted themselves to crushing him. Now, Jesus' response was quite astounding. A lot of people picture Jesus as kind of this docile, inoffensive guru who just went around saying, be nice. But let me tell you something. No one ever got crucified for teaching to be nice. No one in the history of this world ever got crucified for good moral teaching. People get crucified when powerful kingdoms feel deeply threatened. So we're going to work through a fair amount of history today. So I need you to uh, study with me as we think about some history today, okay? About 40 BC, the man who would come to be known as Herod the Great went to Rome and was given the title by the Roman Senate, King of the Jews. This Herod, uh, Herod the Great, was evil and paranoid. Uh, the historian Josephus tells us that he was married to 10 different wives. He had 43 children. Uh, his wife Miriam was the one he loved the most. He married her when he was about 15 years old. Uh, she gave birth to five of his children in seven years. And then he got suspicious that she was plotting to try to have one of her kids take over someday. So he had her executed. She was the only wife he ever really loved. And just to be on the safe side, he had her mother executed as well. He thought two of his sons were getting a little ambitious, and so he had both of them killed. Five days before he died, he died mostly of, uh, most likely of syphilis. Um, he had his oldest son killed in addition to the other two. Caesar Augustus, who Herod prided himself on being friends with, said, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Herod was intensely disliked by the Jews. He had built massive projects in Israel, but he collaborated far too much with the Romans and persecuted far too many aspects of Jewish worship to be popular with them. He knew when he died, no one would mourn for him. So he ordered dozens of the most elite citizens in Israel to be captured and held in the city of Jericho. And he left orders that when he died, they were all to be put to death as well because he wanted there to be weeping in Israel on the day of his death. And he knew no one would weep for him. That's Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who was alive when Jesus was first born. He died uh, quite soon after Jesus's birth. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to focus on three of Herod the Great's kids. Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip. When Herod dies, his sons all travel to Rome because they each want to rule as much of their dad's kingdom as possible. 
Each one of them goes before Caesar and says, I want to be the ruler of as much as my father's kingdom as I can get. And so Caesar has to divvy up what used to be Herod the Great's kingdom among his three sons. And so I'm going to show you a map real quick so you can see how it gets divided up. It's a color-coded deal. Uh, Caesar divides the land up among the three sons. Uh, Judea, where Jerusalem is, the orange section, goes to Archelaus. The bodies of water to the north and south are the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And the Jordan River connects the two of those. And the Mediterranean Sea is to the west. Uh, In Galilee, to the north is Nazareth, where Jesus is, is from. Uh, Herod Antipas gets Galilee, the yellow section. He also gets a region on the other side of the Jordan River, uh, Perea, which means just the other side. Uh, Not a real creative name, but that's what Herod Antipas gets. And the northeast corner goes to the other son, Philip, uh, the green section. Uh, Those are regions that are being governed now by uh, the three sons of Herod the Great. I want to look at this point at the first son. Uh, The oldest son that's still alive is Archelaus. Uh, Archelaus goes to Rome to ask Caesar to be made ruler of as much as possible. Uh, While Archelaus is gone, there's a massive unrest in Jerusalem. It's Passover and Archelaus has been trying to allow more freedom in Judea, in his region. The people keep wanting more. And so Archelaus decides he's got to have his soldiers kind of clamp down. which they do during Passover, when there are a lot of Israelites traveling traveling to Jerusalem and talking about the kingdom. The kingdom is going to come. Jerusalem, during the Passover week, around the temple, is a very dangerous place for people to be talking about the kingdom. So Archelaus's soldiers execute 3,000 Jews during Passover week, uh, right at the temple in Jerusalem. And Archelaus is bitterly hated. He goes to Rome to ask Caesar to be made ruler. The people hate him so much that they actually send a a delegation. The Israelites send a delegation of 50 Jews, Jewish leading citizens, who go to Rome and say to Caesar, don't let him be the king. We don't want this man for our king. They actually asked to be placed under the power of Syria, the Roman governor of Syria. So they didn't have to be ruled under Archelaus. And Caesar makes Archelaus ruler anyhow. And when Archelaus finds out what happened, he has all 50 of those citizens brought before him and he has them executed. Now I want you to see whether or not Jesus is intimidated by the power of Rome. Look at Luke 19:11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Of course, everyone had their own idea of what the kingdom of God would mean. Most of them thought it would be uh, quite violent and certainly involve the overthrow of Rome. Now look at this in verse 12. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent the delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, 
and returned home. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Like what name came to the crowd's mind? Archelaus. What is Jesus doing? He's taunting Archelaus. He goes on to talk about the parable of the talents, a story which certainly he would have told in many places. And he does it somewhat different uh, in different uh, um, versions of the gospels. And here's what he's doing. He's saying, here's a good one. Did you hear the one about a man who goes off to get crowned king and his people hate him so much that they send the delegation to vote him off the island? Did you hear about that one? Can you imagine the people's response? Like, I can't believe he just said that. Like, no one talks that way about the, the rulers crowned by Rome. Not if you want to live. Notice the end of the story, verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. But those enemies of mine, this is the king talking. Who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is what Archelaus said. Look at the last detail in this passage, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now you notice if you have your Bible in in the heading of this passage, it's a passage of the triumphal entry. What city is Jesus going into? Jerusalem. What holiday is being celebrated in Jerusalem? Passover. Jerusalem at Passover time is a real dangerous place for people who are talking about a kingdom other than Rome. And Jesus knows this. All right, I want to look at Luke 3 now. Uh, We're going to look at Herod Antipas now. Uh, This is not Herod the Great. Uh, There are a number of different Herods in the Bible. Uh, uh, There are Herods that come after Herod Antipas. It's sometimes hard to keep them all straight. It's a little like, uh, do you know the names, names of George Foreman's children? George the second, George the third, George the fourth, and so on. Well, the Herod deal was a little bit like that. Uh, so this is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, who reigned when Jesus was a man. Uh, Luke 31. This is a magnificent passage. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Euteria and Trachonidus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Um, by the way, that's the only mention of Texas in the New Testament. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, why does Luke throw in all these names and all these titles? Like, does he get paid by the word? <laughs> Why does he have so many details here? He's got a real serious purpose. He lays out all the powers of all the kingdoms of this earth. And then the word of God comes. And it doesn't come to Caesar. And it doesn't come to Pontius Pilate. It doesn't come to Herod's boys. It doesn't come to the chief priests. It doesn't come to any of these people who have all of this status and all of this power uh, in the kingdoms of this earth, the word of God comes to John, an untitled, unwashed, rag-wearing, locust-eating hermit in the desert. You see, who counts and who doesn't count is going to get all mixed up. Like everything is going to get turned upside down because that's the way it is in the kingdom of God. 
It's a deep, deep part of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Look at verses 18 and 19. And now we start to see the courage of Jesus's followers. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Uh, the good news about what? The good news about the kingdom of God. Matthew, Matthew 3 says that John proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. Look at verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod, and this is John, right? No power, hermit, eats locust in the desert, saying this is uh, Herod the Tetrarch. By the way, Herod Antipas wanted to be king. His dad's title was king. Tetrarch means quarter king. It's like Herod was a king, but Herod Antipas is like a little quarter king. That's what Tetrarch is. It means quarter king. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, all the other evil things that Herod Antipas had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And Herod Antipas probably said to himself, well, that takes care of that. That's the last we'll ever hear of that little kingdom. Look at this verse. This is from the Gospel of Matthew. This is quite a striking verse. Matthew 4, 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Jesus, earlier than this, had been down at the Jordan, apparently in Judea, baptized and so on. Now again, you've got to think about this verse for a moment. After Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, where did Herod, who put John in prison, where did Herod reign? Galilee. After John was put in prison, Jesus goes to Galilee. Like, if I was Jesus and John the Baptist had been pointing toward me, saying, he's the one that's going to bring the kingdom, and John's just been put in prison for the message, for that message, by a guy who rules that country, I don't think that would I would go to that country. Like, Galilee is the last place that I would go. It's as if Jesus is saying, okay, Herod, you think you can shut this kingdom down by putting John the Baptist in prison? You had better think again. You have no idea, Herod, what you're opposing. Jesus generally did not avoid getting into trouble for the sake of the kingdom. The general strategy of those who would bring the kingdom in the New Testament does not seem to be to pray, God, would you get me out of trouble? It seems to be to bring that kingdom to that part of the world uh, that needs it the most, even though it's going to mean the most trouble in the world for me, uh, it means I'm going to go into that trouble to bring the kingdom of God. There's something I'd like to ask you to do right now, just real fast. Think about this. Where is your Galilee? Like, where is the hardest place for you uh, to live out the kingdom of God? Where do you face the biggest challenge, the most difficulty, the, the most fear, the most opposition? Where is your Galilee? Maybe it's your job. Uh, maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe it's your family. Are there dynamics there that make it really difficult for you to bring the kingdom of God into that part of your life? Is there a relationship with a difficult person? Is it maybe at your school? Is it in your financial life? Is that your Galilee? Is it in your marriage? Where is your Galilee? And then what do you need to do to bring the kingdom of God into your Galilee? 
Maybe you need to be bold in your conversations with someone and you've been scared. Maybe you need to forgive someone that you've been resenting for a very long time. That would bring the kingdom of God into your little world. Maybe like John the Baptist did, you need to confront the behavior of someone that you're scared to confront. Maybe bringing the kingdom of God means demonstrating humility where everyone else is engaged in climbing the ladder. Followers of Christ go right into Galilee, even though Galilee is the most dangerous place to be. Avoiding trouble for the sake of the kingdom of God is not really high on their priority list. It's an amazing statement after Herod put John the Baptist in prison. Jesus went to Galilee. I want to show you how much Jesus is not intimidated by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas also had uh, some marriage problems. Uh, the first woman Herod Antipas married was basically a, a political marriage. He married the daughter of the king of his nearest political rival. Uh, it was basically a political marriage to try to create a relationship to save him from being attacked by their father, who was a really powerful guy. He was the king of the Nabataeans. Uh, then after Herod Antipas marries this king's daughter, uh, he falls in love with a woman named Herodias. And we read about her in Luke 3. He decides he wants to marry her, and so he uh, builds her a big palace so that he and she can live in it, in, you know, in this great luxurious palace. Now, there are only a few problems. One is he's already married. Another one is she's already married. And a third problem is she's married to his half-brother, Philip. And another problem is she's actually the daughter of another brother of his, a half-brother. I mean, this sounds like a, a soap opera or something, doesn't it? I'm not making this stuff up. This means that when he marries her, she will be his wife, his niece, and his sister-in-law. And now you understand some of why John the Baptist had a problem with this. Herodias says, yes, I will marry you, but you have to divorce your first wife first. And so he does. Now, remember, he married his first wife just to be in good with her father, who is the king of the Nabataeans and a real powerful guy. And now he divorces her. He divorces uh, the little girl of this most powerful enemy to marry the wife of his brother. And sure enough, his father-in-law declares war on him. And so they go to war. And Herod Antipas brings 10,000 soldiers to the battle. His father-in-law the king of the Nabataeans brings 20,000 soldiers and he smokes him. <laughs> it's a humiliating defeat. Now, in Luke 14, 28, Jesus is talking here about the cost of discipleship. Again, obviously, everyone knows all this stuff. It's not hidden stuff. Jesus gives a couple examples of counting the cost. First, he says this. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are unable to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. He's using humor here. Like, have you ever heard of a construction project going over budget? Well, Jesus is saying, imagine someone getting involved in a construction project, but they never even made a budget. Like they'd never even ask themselves the question, how much is this going to cost? And they run out of money. And the thing just sits there 
half finished and it's going to sit there forever. Jesus says, everyone will laugh at this guy. Everyone will say, this guy is like a few tacos short of a combination plate. Like they'll all ridicule him. The people listening to Jesus are chuckling at this point. Like you have to be a pretty dim bulb to pull something like that. Now look at verse 31. This is unbelievable. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? Here's a good one, Jesus says. Imagine a king goes off to war. His opponent is bringing 20,000 soldiers and he's only bringing 10,000 soldiers. What kind of pea brain lunatic would try to pull off a stunt like that? And everyone knows exactly which pea brain lunatic he's talking about. Everyone is thinking, hey, Jesus, like you keep this up and you're going to be in serious trouble. Well, Jesus keeps talking as if he thinks someone is in serious trouble, but it's not him. It's not him. Not really. Not ultimately. Back to the story now. Luke 7, 24, Herod Antipas at this point has John in prison. Uh, John sends some of his people to talk to Jesus to find out what's going on. Uh, Jesus uh, does that and then he turns to talk to the crowd about John's ministry. Like one background note before we read Luke uh, 7, 24, in those days, the vast majority of people were illiterate. Like even if they weren't, Obviously, there were not newspapers, there was not electronic media, and so on. So for politicians, communication and marketing was very important. Uh, Peter Richards, in his book, Herod, writes a whole chapter on uh, politicians using coins and inscriptions to keep their image, to keep their name in front of people. Well, very often they would have their picture, and then they would have some symbol connected with their picture. Herod Antipas used a symbol that was connected to him on his coins. Uh, most, of, most of those who ruled in the Holy Land didn't put their picture on the coins because they didn't want to offend the Jews, because the Jews believed you should not have a, a graven image. And so they wouldn't want to put a picture on it, but they would use a symbol. Uh, it's a lot like in our day, when you see an elephant, like what political party do you think of? The Republican Party. And if you see a donkey, you think of the Democratic Party. So Herod Antipas used a symbol that was very common in Galilee because of the Sea of Galilee. It was a Galilean reed. Like that was the image that he put on coins to remind people of his presence and his reign. That's what they would think of when they would see a reed, uh, just like when we see an elephant, we would think of the Republican Party. So in Luke uh, 7, 24, Jesus talks about how John the Baptist's ministry has been going. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Interesting picture for a politician, isn't it? A reed swayed by the wind with no real convictions. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? John the Baptist was not going to be on the cover of GQ. No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. What was he saying? 
He's saying you didn't go out to see Herod. Like you want a better kingdom than the kind of kingdom that Herod's, the Herod's of this world will build. You want a better king than that. Like this is amazing boldness. And as people see this, as they see Jesus's courage, other people start to get courage as well. I want to show you something else that I never really noticed before. It's in Luke 8. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the, the good news of the kingdom of God. And he talks about some people who were with them, like some women in particular at the bottom of verse three. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, this is quite a shocking passage that says Jesus was traveling not just with men, but with women, traveling together in community. And not only that, but Jesus and the men were being supported financially by the women. And apparently that didn't trouble their egos at all. This is remarkable stuff. And what I want especially for you to notice is in verse two, the 12 men were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. Like her husband works for Herod and she's following Jesus. Can you imagine the courage it took for her, this woman whose husband worked for Herod Antipas to become publicly identified as a follower of Jesus and not just a follower, but her husband uh, as manager of Herod's household would have a large salary. He would be a man of great wealth, very significant resources. She is taking the money that he's making from Herod and who does she give it to? And Jesus, which means Herod is funding Jesus. Like when the disciples look at their key donor list, like Herod is like in the Eagles club. Like how subversive is the kingdom of God? No wonder Dallas Willard calls it the divine conspiracy because it's at work all over. Like no one is ever safe from it. No one who is part of it ever has a reason to be discouraged or to lose hope because God is never struggling over resources. Do you need some money to fund your mission, son? You know, just channel it from Herod. This is unbelievable. All right, over to Luke 9, 7. Jesus continues to manifest and preach the kingdom. He sends his disciples out to preach the kingdom of God, the gospel. Who can now live in it? It's breaking into uh, the world. Everyone can live in it. That's our gospel. That's the gospel he's manifesting in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Uh, the general idea most likely is that Herod wanted to do to Jesus what he did to John. Now look at verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. 
they had been in Galilee, they withdraw to Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's territory that is governed by Philip. Uh, Philip, you remember, whose wife Herod Antipas stole, is probably not real fond of Herod Antipas these days. And apparently what's going on is Herod Antipas is after Jesus. And if you look in the New Testament, almost always when the writer says Jesus withdrew, it's talking about Bethsaida and this region in Philip's territory. The idea is not just that Jesus is going out for a little rest and relaxation. The idea is that things have gotten too hot for Jesus in Galilee and he goes to a safe territory. It may may well be that when Jesus traveled from town to town, as he did, uh, it's not just like this leisurely itinerary. It may may well be that, at least in part, he's constantly having to dodge Herod and Herod's men until he's convinced that his followers understand enough about the kingdom that he can leave it in their hands. Now look at Luke 13, 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on toward tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jesus here chooses his words very carefully go tell that fox. In our day, if someone uses the word fox, what's the main adjective they're thinking of? Like sly or cunning. In the first century, people used it differently. And the rabbis did this as well. They would often pair foxes and lions. When a lion was uh, that was majestic, a king of the jungle, like made a kill, afterwards the foxes would try to sneak up Uh, after the lion had enough and make their way in to be a part of that kill too. That's why uh, they're contrasted, foxes with lions. And the idea was a fox was kind of a lion wannabe, kind of a fake, kind of a poser. That's what a fox was. This is actually a rabbinic saying. It's better to be the tail of a lion than the head of a fox. Herod immediately would feel the sting. Herod lived with this reality all of the time. You see, Caesar is the lion. Caesar is the king. Herod is just like a Caesar wannabe. More than that, Jesus is saying that Herod Antipas has the wrong kind of power and the wrong kind of kingdom. Like he isn't really king at all. Go tell that fox. And if you can't hear the defiance in Jesus's voice, by this time, you're not listening. This is not like flannel graph Jesus. Like this is Jesus from the heart of Oakland. Like go tell that fox, that poser, that Caesar wannabe, that if he thinks he can stop me with threats and intimidation, he's lost his mind. I will manifest the kingdom. I will drive out demons. I will heal people. I will just keep doing that today and I will do it tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. Because the third day, that's God's day. You see, that's resurrection day. I'm going to make this observation about Jesus, but it applies to you and me as well. Uh, Opposition is not a sign of failure. Opposition 
does not necessarily mean you did something wrong. Jesus does not say, Herod Antipas doesn't like me, I must have done something wrong. He does not define mission achievement as crowds that keep getting bigger and bigger and everyone is more and more pleased with him. He is not worried about facing opposition at all. Go tell that fox, I will manifest the kingdom. I will today, I will tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. Think about this. Answer this question. Who or what plays the role of Herod Antipas in your life? Like what's threatening you? What's scaring you? What's intimidating you? What's keeping you from abandon in your life for the sake of helping the kingdom of God to be brought from heaven to invade your little world? If you've been a people pleaser your whole life and you start boldly speaking the truth in love, some people will not like it. Speak the truth in love anyway. If you get serious about really giving your resources, if you get serious about what Jesus says about the stuff that we have, there's going to be people who say to you, you know what, you're crazy. There are going to be people who don't like it because maybe it makes them feel guilty. Don't that let that stop you. I had a student tell me this summer, my challenge this year is to be unafraid of telling my peers at school about my faith. You see, for him, Herod Antipas is the peer structure at school that says, keep quiet about Jesus. You don't want people to think you're weird. Anyone, anything, like any force that tries to dethrone Jesus in your life to get you to give up on the kingdom is a fake and a fraud and a wannabe. Go tell that fox, I will manifest the kingdom in my life. I will today, I will tomorrow, and on the third day, on God's day, I will reach my goal. Look at verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Jesus chooses a fox to characterize Herod, and that's not a real surprise. What's surprising is the animal he picks to represent himself. Uh, This man of such magnificent defiance, like such breathtaking courage, uses a hen. It's an interesting thing. You know, I've been thinking all week about this position of the fox and the hen. When a fox breaks into a hen house, the mother hen doesn't have many weapons to fight back with, no claws to scratch him with, no teeth to gore him with. What can she do to protect her children? All she can do is to gather her children around her and use her own body as a shield. All she can do to save her children is to die for them. Do you get it? Like Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He knew it all along. He didn't have to have supernatural insight to know it. What he knew was apparent to any modestly astute observer. In Acts 5.36, Gamaliel says to the Sanhedrin, there's history on this. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and his followers were, were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared and the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, 
and all of his followers were scattered. Rome was very consistent. Rome would hear. Rome and those who collaborated with Rome would act. And if he stayed this course, if he stayed on this message of the kingdom, it was only a matter of time. It happened to John. It would happen to Jesus. It was utterly predictable. Jesus knew that when he said those words, he was pronouncing his death sentence. I wonder when he first said them, if he paused for a moment. I wonder if it was tempting for him to just try to be a a good moral teacher and tell people to love God more. But he said those words and he kept proclaiming them and he kept manifesting them. In his whole ministry, he befriended sinners and healed lepers and loved and blessed children and spoke of himself as a person of immense joy. He told his friends, I'm telling you all of this that I'm teaching you so that my joy can be in you and your joy can be complete like mine is. What amazes me about this person of great joy is this was the ministry of a man who knew with utter certainty that he was going to be put to death because of what he said. And he kept saying it and he kept saying it until they hung him on a cross as he knew they would. Doesn't it make you proud to be one of his followers? He knew one other thing. Where does a hen beat a fox? A hen only beats a fox in the kingdom of God. When does a hen beat a fox? A hen only beats a fox on the third day. And that kingdom, God's kingdom, that's our kingdom. We get to live in God's kingdom. And that third day, like that's our day. So go into your world, into your little kingdoms and bring the kingdom of God to whoever you interact with this week. All right, let me pray for you. God, I pray that you would help us to have the same kind of uh, courage and boldness that Jesus had when he lived on this earth to proclaim your kingdom. God, I just pray that as we go into our world, into our neighborhoods, into our families, into our homes, into our workplaces, that you would give us insight into conversations. Help us to be bold in bringing your kingdom into those places and into those conversations. And God, may you use us to continue to advance your kingdom in this world today. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, For directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, And we hope to see you on Sunday soon.